We're looking at John chapter 9 this evening. In the Church Bibles, it's on page 1075. It's quite a long chapter, but it's a chapter that easily divides into three. We're going to look at the three sections separately. It would have been tempting to overlook the middle section, which is quite long and involved, but I felt that it would be valuable to read it as well, but that would be the second part of the sermon. The first part we're reading from verse 1 through to verse 7. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. We're confronted right at the beginning in this text with what is a very common and universal question. Uh, The disciples are walking along and there's a man who is blind sitting beside the road. Quite a tragic, heartbreaking situation, and the question has always arised is, is why? What is the cause, and, and who is to blame? And so in the Jewish context of Israel at the time, as appears here, when someone is suffering in this way, it was taken to be an indication that there was a problem of guilt somewhere, that someone somewhere along the line, had committed a grievous sin which had led to this uh, particular condition. Here we have a a handicapped child who's grown into an adult who is afflicted uh, with blindness. Of course, this particular situation raises the question, can a fetus growing in the the mother's tummy uh, commit such a grievous sin as to bring about such a horrible chastisement? of being blind. And so people uh, speculate on whether it was the baby who had committed the sin or whether it was uh, the mother or the parents. And we do actually see later in the text that the Pharisees assume that this man, because he was blind, was a particularly uh, grievous sinner. Now, if they'd been reading their Bibles attentively and they'd read the book of Job, um, They should have concluded that that type of thinking is really quite misleading and erroneous. We'll get back to that. Well, they obviously haven't been reading it very well. So I said earlier, I'm kind of familiar with Africa and its worldview. If you were to travel to a remote village in West Africa today and see a blind baby in the mother's arms, people would be asking similar questions. Why has this happened? And in remote West African villages, African tribal religion, they would be thinking, who has offended the local deities? What have you done to offend your ancestors? Or is there someone around you who's done sorcery 
that has brought this about. It's that same fundamental question, why has this happened? Leading on to who is to blame. Let's come back to our own families in secular Britain. Let's say we're not Christian anyway, in a secular atheist family, how would they approach this problem? A child tragically born blind. The scientific worldview, I would suggest, would say, well, let's look at genetic disorders and diseases, particularly coming from the mother or the father, or has the mother eaten something or taken some kind of medicine that's had this effect? It's the same question of why has this happened? And then, sadly, who is to blame? And it's that second question that usually causes pastoral problems. And so wherever you're living in the world, there's this same question. Why do things go wrong? Why are babies born with disabilities? What has happened and who is to blame? But we see that Jesus enters into this this fray, uh, this philosophical, this pastoral quagmire. And he actually dismisses the explanations of his day. He dismisses the whole question of whether this kind of suffering is directly related to particular personal sin. He kind of says it's not interesting, it's just not the case, it's not a question we should be asking. And in a sense it's quite reassuring because it cuts through the whole kind of, the whole problem of the the blame game that so many like to play, the whole problem of trying to apportion guilt in these circumstances all too often. Now the question of the relationship between suffering, between evil, is very complex. It's an important question, uh, but it's kind of outside of my remit this evening. And when we bring into it questions of God, who God is and his goodness, his displeasure, his justice, his correction, it just opens up into a whole wider debate. So in a sense I'm going to do what Jesus did and not really work on this question very much this evening. What I will say though is that uh, I think that Jesus, uh, with any approach to this question, would, would ask us to be careful and would tell us that the kind of contemporary ways of approaching these questions are at best incomplete or unsatisfactory and at worst misleading, erroneous and pastorally dangerous. I suggest as well that whilst there is a certain validity to talking about these questions, there remains an element of mystery. Our minds are limited. Even the best minds in Oxford, as they grapple with this question, bump up against walls where our knowledge, where our reasoning just just can't go beyond it. We have to accept that there's a certain degree of of mystery and that we can't tie up all the loose, loose ends in the whole question of suffering and evil. What Jesus does, which I think is the most important, I think that he calls us to be less absorbed, less focused, less preoccupied by the why questions, in particular one that descends into the blame game, 
and to rather ask what? What can I do to help? What can I do to alleviate suffering? What can I do to make things better? And it's clear in this text and in all of the Gospels that Jesus did not come to cause suffering. Jesus is not the author of evil. Jesus has come to make things better. Jesus is the remedy. He might not give an explanation of the cause and we might feel a little dissatisfied by that. But he's come to reveal God's remedy. In this first text that we read, we read that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the one who reveals God in all of his fullness. He reveals God's goodness and his grace. He reveals God's mercy, God's righteousness and holiness as well. Jesus has come to make God known and in healing the man born blind, he is there once again, seeing that as an opportunity, yes, to express compassion, also a sign that makes God known. So yes, Jesus heals the man, an expression of loving, practical care. But that's also a sign that points beyond this event to something deeper, which we will see as we go throughout this sermon. But first of all, as we conclude the first part, Jesus' attitude towards suffering and the person who suffers is to avoid layering on guilt unhelpfully. It's to avoid unhelpful speculation, but it's rather to be practical, have that compassionate, helpful, loving engagement with people who suffer. This is a good example to follow, I, I suggest. And so given the brokenness of human lives, whatever lies behind that, whatever the cause might be, Jesus is there to bring hope, to bring redemption, to bring new creation. We'll now move on to part two in this short play. Jesus has said, I am the light of the world. Uh, at first sight, it appeared to me a bit, a bit strange that he says this here. He's already said it in chapter 8. I think the importance comes out as we read verses 8 to 34, which I'll try to do quickly. In a sense, these verses are both tragic and comic. I find the whole thing a bit farcical. And I'll try to make that clear in the, in the way I read it. Verse 8. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him, but he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? They asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought him to the Pharisees. Sorry, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. 
Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered. And we know he, has been, he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He can speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I told you already, you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciples. Disciple, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that's remarkable. You don't know where he come from, comes from, yet he opens my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus says then that he is the light of the world and yet it's obvious from this long passage that, that no one can see the light. We can all see the lights in this room. The only kind of people who wouldn't be able to see these lights would be people who are blind. And so this whole sign of Jesus, the man born blind, is pointed to a second form of blindness. Spiritual blindness. What makes or what keeps people spiritually blind? I think there's three categories of person in this long text pointing to three different uh, things that maintain people in spiritual blindness. The first one the man who was born blind, we can see as a picture of ignorance. Jesus has healed him. He can see once again, physically. He can find his way around by himself. And yet he seems to know very little about the one who healed him. He knows his name is Jesus, but beyond that, he's just kind of guessing. He's speculating, saying, well, 
if he could do this, then he must be a prophet, he must be a good man. He doesn't seem to get very far beyond that. There's that sense of ignorance and of confusion about who Jesus really is. That's keeping him spiritually blind. Ignorance about Jesus, I would suggest, is an increasing problem in our own culture, our own society. I think there's probably uh, increasing biblical Bible illiteracy. People are misinformed about Jesus, disinformed about Jesus. They're ignorant about who he really is and about why he really came. We're living in days where there is huge ignorance about Jesus. And sadly, tragically, that is keeping people in spiritual blindness. The second kind of person that appears in this account are the Pharisees. And I would suggest that they are blinded by a sense of self-righteousness a strict legalism and man-made religion. Here you have a, a, a man who, ha, who was blind and who now can see. It's absolutely astounding and remarkable. And yet they don't seem to care very much about that. They're just fixated upon this problem that it happened on the Sabbath day. That Jesus mixed up some mud. Now, I haven't checked into this, but maybe mixing up mud is is similar to building a home, I, I don't know. But certainly healing a person, that was just something that wasn't done on a Sabbath day. Sometimes I get the impression that, oh, Jesus only heals on the Sabbath, but I need to check that in the Gospels. But every time he does so, it's a, it causes controversy. The Pharisees, they're, they're fixated on this and not seeing beyond it to, to ask themselves, well, something remarkable has happened and what's that pointing us to? They're kind of fixed, blind in their religion. Their sense of self-righteousness, their sense of thinking we've got everything right, we know best. And so they remain blind to the light that Jesus brings They're attached to their traditions, their expectations. And so they fail to see Jesus as he really is. It would be kind of tempting to point the finger at other denominations or church constituencies and say, they've got everything wrong about Jesus. But Jesus himself in Matthew's Gospel says, don't take the, the speck out of your brother's eye until you've taken the log out of your own eye. I sometimes wonder if we have blind spots in our own faith, in our own understanding of God's word, in our own understanding of who Jesus is. And the first thing we can do is examine ourselves, ask ourselves whether there are traditions which we are holding to be more important and keeping us from seeing Jesus as he really is. Ask ourselves if there are rules and regulations that we are too attached to and that prevent us from seeing Jesus in all of his grace and his glory. Are there rituals, are there 
translations of the Bibles, types of songs. Sadly, these things can become too important in some churches. I don't believe it's the case here, but let's not allow anything to become so important that it gets, us, gets in the way of us from seeing Jesus as he really is. Are there any ways in which we are similar to the Pharisees? In a sense, if we have blind spots, it maybe needs others to point them out to us. Are we open to, to others from other traditions, from other places in the world, coming to us and saying, well, have you thought about this? Or you don't seem to be understanding this? Let's uh, be open to that. And then the fir- third kind of thing that maybe maintains people in that sense of spiritual blindness is fear. Here we see that the man's parents, uh, they really don't want to get involved into the issue of who Jesus was and how come their, their son had been healed. And they just uh, want to keep away, keep their distance there, afraid. They're afraid of being thrown out of the synagogue. Uh, it's true that those fears were justified because later on, as we read at the end of the text, the man who was born blind and who could now see he was expelled from the synagogue for tentatively saying that Jesus must be a good man if he did this to me. And so fear can be irrational, but fear can be based on, on real things. But there is that sense in which fear keeps people from seeing Jesus as he really is. The fear of what you might have to give up, the fear of what we may lose in following Jesus Christ the fear of what family or friends might think of us, the fear of being stigmatised or ridiculed, or perhaps, as is growing these days, a fear of discrimination, a fear of prejudice, a fear even of the legal implications of being a Christian. And all of these things can keep us blind, blind us to who Jesus really is. And so we read the final part of the chapter. Scene 3, Jesus meets the man born blind once again. I forgot to put this on. So, verses 35 to the end of the chapter. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What are we blind to? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So if the first encounter with Jesus was about restoring his physical sight, I would suggest that this second encounter, second meeting, is about restoring this man's spiritual sight. Jesus had become aware of the trouble that this man had uh, endured 
because of his healing, he knew that he'd been thrown out of the synagogue. And so he asked him the question, do you believe in the Son of Man? And his initial answer reveals the man's spiritual blindness. Who is he? There's still that sense of ignorance and confusion. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know what's happened to him. Jesus replies that the Son of Man is actually standing there before him and that if he can see with his physical eyes, it's because the Son of Man has worked this miracle. And suddenly it seems that everything falls into place. The man understands. He sees something new, not just physically with his own eyes, the the face of Jesus, but he sees with those eyes of faith who Jesus really is. He understands that he is the Son of Man. His spiritual sight has been restored. He sees Jesus as he really is. He sees Jesus in all of his grace, in all of his glory. And there's that natural, irresistible response of belief, faith, trust, and of worship, praise, thanksgiving. Who, though, is the Son of Man? It's interesting that in the Gospels, this is how Jesus most commonly refers to himself. It occurs, I'm told, 81 times in the four Gospels, Jesus declares that he is the Son of Man. In Jesus' mouth, it surely has something of messianic meaning. It means he is the one who God has chosen to anoint and to send. It refers in most likelihood to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which I I won't read. But Daniel has this vision of a person who is called the Son of Man. It's a vision of a heavenly figure who is entrusted by God with all authority, with glory and with sovereign power, and who is sent to inaugurate a new age, an age of the fulfilment of God's promises. So when Jesus says he is the Son of Man, he's surely referring to this this vision in Daniel of a heavenly figure sent by God to represent God, to reveal God, to exercise his sovereign authority. There may be a second tone of meaning though. In all likelihood, the Son of Man may refer to the fact that Jesus is the second Adam, that Jesus is the new archetypal man, Jesus is the new model man, that where Adam failed, Jesus is now the the, the example, the model of what a human being should be in relation to God and living in the world. But whatever is the case, this idea of the Son of Man, Jesus being the Son of Man, uh, reflects or refers to all the promises of the Old Testament being fulfilled in the person of Jesus, coming as the servant saviour coming as the new king over Israel and beyond into the nations. And so this man who was born blind and who could see again, can now see again a second time. Who can see who the Son of Man, who Jesus 
really is. Jesus makes God known, God known, in all of his glory, his compassion, his righteousness, his mercy, his purity, his faithfulness and his holiness. He now sees Jesus as he really is. And he can do nothing but believe and worship. And when we see truly today, when we have really seen Jesus, when we understand who he really is, belief becomes irresistible. Worship becomes irresistible. Jesus is the light of the world and he can break through He does break through our spiritual blindness, whether it be ignorance, whether it be self-righteousness, whether it be fear. Jesus takes those things away. He allows us to see him in all of his grace and all of his glory. And so this healing of the man born blind is a sign pointing to deeper and higher spiritual realities. It's tragic and it's heartbreaking for a baby to be born blind. And with all the respect in the world, John's Gospel is teaching us that there's something equally tragic and equally heartbreaking and that's that people can't see Jesus for who he really is. It might not be a problem we think about, we might be unconscious of it, we don't perhaps take it seriously enough. Imagine the joy and the excitement of this man as he sees for the first time the colours around him. For us who've never been blind, it's just unthinkable, indescribable. So then think of the joy and excitement that we should have when we see Jesus for who he really is. And we believe in him and we trust in him. Most people aren't born blind twice, as this man was. Being born blind spiritually is a universal problem. But Jesus is there. and He's there to heal that blindness. He's there to shed his light so that people can believe in him and trust him. Let's pray for each other. And let's pray beyond that through us, through Jesus' church, by the work of his spirit, he will continue that uh, work, that wonder, that sign of healing those who are born blind and allowing them to see Jesus as he really is.